New Dimensions Radio has been making a difference on our planet since 1973, thanks to the generosity of our listeners. You too can help make a difference with a tax-deductible donation or membership. Please visit our website, newdimensions.org, and just click the Donate button. We at New Dimensions thank you for your support. Hello, I'm Justine Willis-Toms. Today I'm hosting Dr. Martin Shaw. He's the author of Courting the Wild Twin. Welcome, Martin, to the New Dimensions Cafe. Pleasure. Glad to be here. Martin, I know you're a grand storyteller, and in this particular book, you're taking us uh, to two stories, and one of them is called The Lindworm. And it really is about the exiled twin. So what do you have to say about the importance of, well, do we all have a twin? The stories would tell us that we do. The old belief is this, that the day or the night you were born, you had a twin that didn't look right to the people around you. So it was thrown out of the window into the forest and everyone tried to forget about it. The problem for you is that that twin carries a lot of vitality with it, carries a lot of energy with it, carries a lot of opinion with it, carries a lot of shamelessness with it, carries a lot of glee with it. And so as we get older, we begin to wonder, where did all the glee go? Where did all the energy go? Where did all my rashness go? Where did my recklessness go? Well, stories tell us it's in the domain of the twin. And it's actually the business of a grown-up to try and seek out that twin that society at large would rather you knew nothing about. Because the twin is the one that can kick up the, the right kind of trouble, as I think Michael Mead used to call it. The stuff that gets us into the hot spots in our life that actually means something may happen. Something really interesting may happen. Um, the wild twin is profoundly undomestic. It doesn't like to see you settling for less than you deserve. It has lofty, peculiar opinions. It's very particular. It's not afraid of grandiosity on occasion, but it also has what Lorca used to call duende. It has that feeling that there's something in the wild smile of an old flamenco dancer that we as a society really need to know something about. So the wild twin carries grit, it carries soul, it carries shadow. So there's a lot of desire with the twin. There's a lot of uh, unconventional desire <laughs> brewed up in the forest. And actually you can tell people when they're in touch with this twin because there's a kind of robustness to them. There's a kind of life force to them that approve or disapprove. They don't really uh, care about that. They're here for a period of time and they are going to live to the full stretch of their wingspan. And I know a lot of people around me who are my dear friends, and they won't actually be offended by me saying this. They eat all the right food. They do all the right meditation. They are not harbingers of, you know, violence or trouble, but they're a little lifeless. They're a little lifeless. And they 
have forgotten this notion of reckless thinking on occasion. You know, uh, our mutual friend and my old mentor, Bly, Robert would always say, listen, half the stuff I say, I'm just saying it to see what happens next. Isn't that wonderful? Take your imagination for a walk and see where it lands you. It helped that Bly was kind of, you know, irascible and very brilliant and kind of tough. But for all of us, um, there has to be a time in the day where you think at the very edge of your understanding. If you want to be a good writer, for God's sake, make sure there's a, a desk in your house where you notice that's the part of the house you have your strangest, most tangliest of thoughts, and don't edit them too quick. If you need to open a bottle of wine, open a bottle of wine. Do whatever it takes just to get that that moment. Do you know that excitement as a writer or as an artist in general when you're scribbling something down and it's coming out faster than you can think about it? Now, in the Arthurian stories, there's an image for that. It's called the questing beast. Around the forests of Camelot, there is a being that is part serpent, part lion, and part goat. And Jane Hirschfield is in pursuit of the questing beast. And Lorca is in pursuit of the questing beast. Pablo Neruda is in is doing it. Patti Smith is doing it. Simone de Beauvoir was doing it. Germaine Greer was doing it. All the people that really excite us are not trying to trap the questing beast. They're trying to trail it. Big difference. You're not trying to put it in a cage. You're just trailing the thing. Um, so, you know, that's something I like to think about. You know, Martin, in the story of the lindworm, two things pop from what you just said. You mentioned desire. And in the story itself, the queen who cannot conceive meets the old woman, of course, the old woman of the forest. And the woman tells her one of the things that she needs to do is to be with herself and speak all of her desires. And she wanders around just saying what is so deeply in her heart. I wish that you could comment on that. There's an old belief in fairy tales that if you can't speak your desire, they're probably not true. I mean, that's a very William Blake idea as well. If you can't give the thing language, if you can control your desire, are you sure it's desire at all? I mean, to be fair, I've, I've spent quite a bit of my life certainly circulating around indigenous cultures and one of the things they talk about a lot is your capacity as you get older to regulate desire to talk to desire to not be utterly possessed by it but on the other hand if there's something that you really do desire you need to speak it out just to see it's back to what i was just talking about to see what happens next if it's an energetic possibility that you kind of spit out into the world and see where it lands. And a lot of us are rather bent over. You know, we can't quite see the stretch of our wingspan because we're not in a culture or an environment where we speak our desire. The story Tatterhood that is also in the book is about a little girl that's born with a tattered hood and she's waving a spoon and she rides the back of a goat. I mean, this is 
you know, Hermes incarnate. This is the most extraordinary of creatures. Uh, culturally, we all need a good, thorough drubbing of Tatterhood at the moment. But Tatterhood speaks her desires. In the story, when she's to marry, she does this incredible thing. She tells her husband the questions he needs to ask her to open her heart. So many of us in relationships, we we become inarticulate about how to actually speak to our partner in a way they really respond to. So she says, you know, my dowry to you is I'm actually going to tell you what you need to ask me to really open my heart, to open my soul. And he's smart enough to say, that's the best dowry I've ever heard of please tell me. And then she goes ahead. And so it's a great clue for us in relationship. Speak your desires. There's a uh, a deep emphasis on both listening in myth that we've already uh, covered a little bit, talked about listening is a big thing for me. But also there comes a point where wonder out loud, wonder out loud that's what storytelling is storytelling when it's most magnificent for me is oral thought it's not a recital it's not bad theater it is a somebody standing up there stand and deliver style like an old highwayman or woman or whatever however you want to see yourself and trying to find a crooked way of telling the truth I'm reminded of a piece in your book, you're speaking about myth, and you, you talk about here we are, there's a motorway, and underneath that motorway is a lane, and underneath that is a track. You just go down deeper and deeper and deeper that we're driving on these highways, but underneath all of that, is something very, very precious for us. The thing that I'd say about that notion in the book is, you know, underneath the, underneath the motorway is the road, underneath the road is a track, and underneath the track is the hoof prints of a deer. It's this old notion that there's something very ancient in us. And actually, at the moment where we are temporarily deprived of certain things that we're used to, instant gratification, instant communication, in the seeming lack of that, something you can really start to sense, what I like to think of as the, the old man that lives in my face. There's something very old in me that is not connected to the 48 years I've lived on the planet. There's something older than that. And I'm not getting into issues of reincarnation necessarily or anything like that. But there's a kind of deeper listening required that multitasking assassinates. That's very unpopular for me to say, especially as a dad. But multitasking, uh, if you're not very careful, is a kind of juggling act that really distracts and disinterests the soul. This is a moment where the soul in you or I or us as a society is probably quite interested because there's a silence around us that it hasn't heard for a very long time. There was a mythologist who I deeply love called Danny Deardorff, and Danny used to say to me, the soul is not impressed by much. Most of what <laughs> we do, most of our successes, it's indifferent to. But you get into a moment like this 
with a little juice in it, with a little unpredictability to it, where we're having to change the ways we behave, we're into an interesting zone. Now, the thing about initiations is they're always specific. So the question I'd ask anybody listening is, if you think what we are going through right now as a culture is an initiation, what are we being initiated into? Now, when you hear the word initiation, you tend to think of, you know, tribal groups or village initiations. This is different to that because the earth is curating it. It's not a little group of deeply prepared men and women. It's the earth itself. But still, if it is trying to push us in a particular direction we need to go in, my question is, if initiation is specific, what are we learning about? Another thing that I have to caution is that, you know, initiations are not always successful. They're not always a a grand assumption that everything will work out well. Things may absolutely not work out well. But I come back to the myths and the stories because they deal with depravity, complexity, philosophy. They deal with the moment where we as a person or as a culture, enter the underworld, and they give me images that feed that thing I just mentioned called the soul. Because if all you live with is the statistics of coronavirus, trust me, you may never leave your house and you're still going to have a nervous breakdown. So look for images. Statistics are making us crazy in week five or week six of of, um, of lockdown you know bring a few images in or as Rumi says you know pull down a musical instrument do something that really edifies that part of yourself and I have to say this if you are a parent you are a gatekeeper and it is your job not to send a five-year-old or a six-year-old or a nine-year-old crazy with anxiety at the moment I see a lot of friends of mine hemorrhaging so much worry themselves that they forget that there's little ones around you who are saying, my God, if my parents are this frightened, there's no way out of this. So check yourself around that. I hope this makes sense. It's something I just have to say as a a dad. Well, I, I love it that you're saying it. And what I hear in what you're saying, Martin, is that we have this moment, this pause, so to speak, in order to bring forth our own unique creativity, however it is in writing or speaking or dancing or the visual arts or whatever it is that we give voice to that and to take the time to do that now. Any last comments? I would say what I've actually said to anybody that's asked me recently, which is this, I wish you the deepest courage in all of this and the audacious possibility that maybe this moment has rocked up in your life perfectly on time. Maybe this isn't some abstract event, but it's actually an opportunity for you to really wrestle with the angel. You know, there there are three strange angels knocking at your door. For God's sake, listen to them. Don't go easy. Don't be pacified too quickly. Don't necessarily even think about everything as normal. You know, the old dagger, the African expression they have for a moment like this is world turned upside down. 
And if you flip it too quickly, you get the bends. So for most of us, uh, my counsel is the three strange angels are knocking at your door. Admit them, admit them, admit them. Thank you so much for leaving us with that image and thought. Thank you so much and that wisdom. I've been speaking with Dr. Martin Shaw, and he's the author of Courting the Wild Twin and many other books. And if you'd like to know more about his work, you can go to his website, drmartinshaw.com, and he spells it, he abbreviates Dr. drmartinshaw.com. Or you can get there through the New Dimensions website, newdimensions.org. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. I want to thank you for joining us on the New Dimensions Cafe, and I invite you to please do join us again. You've been listening to the New Dimensions Cafe. This series of shorter interviews features many of the remarkable guests also featured on our internationally syndicated one-hour New Dimensions radio series. To access more than a thousand hours of programs, to subscribe to our newsletters, or to become a member, please visit us at newdimensions.org. New Dimensions Radio has been making a difference on our planet since 1973, thanks to the generosity of our listeners. You, too, can help make a difference with a tax-deductible donation or membership. Please visit our website, newdimensions.org, and just click the Donate button. We at New Dimensions thank you for your support.